the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Proudly supported by Disney Plus. Full of stories and love for all. The next programme may contain material that is distressing and listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the Queer Love Show on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Rosie Wilby. I'm a comedian, podcaster and the author of the books Is Monogamy Dead? and The Breakup Monologues. You might have heard me on Virgin Radio Pride recently delving into queer arts and culture with Dean Atter and Jen Ives. I'm delighted to be here again to explore queer love and relationships with three fabulous guests. Dr Jackie Gabb is Professor of Sociology and Intimacy at The Open University and Chief Relationships Officer at Paired, the global number one couple relationship app. She's been researching personal life, intimacy and sexuality for over 20 years and has published extensively in this area. Jane Chance Shizalska is a relational integrative psychotherapist and counsellor in private practice who works mainly with LGBTQ plus clients. From 2004 to 2017, they were the editor of Diva magazine and they have recently edited a book, Queering Psychotherapy, a collection of essays and conversations by and between diverse therapists, which will be published by Confer and Karnak later this year. And British Raja Helm is a relational psychotherapist and the co-founder of Ashna UK. Ashna is a home for supporting the healing of marginalised and intersectional identities. I'm so excited to have them all with me today. As someone who initially began exploring the psychology of queer love for comedy writing and live performance, and then finding that my work out of necessity incorporated a more serious side too, I really wanted to have a conversation with my guests to ask, now that LGBTQ plus people have more access to heteronormative family structures, are we in danger of losing sight of some of the creative and ingenious relationship solutions, such as ethical non-monogamy, conscious uncoupling and living apart together, that are being pioneered within our community during our time spent on the margins? Are falling in and out of love universal experiences or are queer relationships unique? If we assume sameness, do we fail to understand and treat queer people when they seek help and advice? So many questions and so much to think about there. And I think what I'd like to do to start off is maybe if each of us share how we feel our work has got us to our current thinking about how queer people experience love. As I mentioned I initially began exploring this area for the purposes of comedy shows and writing and started to delve into it much more seriously now that I've started writing books and articles and, and doing talks and, and much more crossover work. But, I mean, you three, you know, work much more on the, the serious side of, of analysing relationships and love very much in an inclusive and from a queer perspective. And I think myself, I've reached a, a sort of interesting almost point of, of transition and a crossroads where I've really been celebrating for many years the the freedom that I think queer people have had to sort of step away from the normative narratives that a lot of my straight friends feel really locked in by and I've felt quite happy and excited by the possibilities that stepping away from those norms has opened up but I think now I'm starting to understand how sort of past trauma and the legacy of that may also play a role 
in some of my choices. So I wondered if I could start perhaps with Jackie about uh, how your work has has influenced your own thoughts about where we are at the moment with with queer love and and how our relationships differ or are perhaps the same as as all relationships. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of continuity alongside the change. So when I first started looking at LGBTQ relationships, but back in the day then, we just called them um, lesbian, gay, bisexual relationships. Mm. Um, I think I was interested in looking at how different identities negotiated the intersections of lived experience and their context. So, for example... Um, I did a study on lesbian motherhood and what was interesting about that back in the day because that was 20 plus years ago is that I was talking to women who'd lost their children through custody battles I was talking to lesbians who'd um, had children together and I was talking to lesbians who'd had children through heterosexual relationships and then co-parented in a way um, with a partner that's no different to now in many ways. I was a lesbian mother myself, so, mm -hmm. you know, I was part of that group. But I think what struck me was if we think today, just looking at parenthood as a category, because I think in, a, in some ways it's easier to focus on, on one thing, and we think about love within that category. You started out with, you know, you were sexual outlaws and therefore you were fighting a system, you were mm. thinking that, there was something which was distinctive about your parenting. Well, actually, and, and also your love, your love for your partner, your love for yourself and your love for your children. And actually, what I was finding in the research is all the parents I was talking to were saying, we're just the same. You know, mm. We are absolutely no different. Changing a nappy is changing a nappy. <laughs> I love my partner just because they're same sex. What would be the difference? And I think, um, I think now there seems to be a difference. There's certainly a political and a legal difference, mm. but is the experience that much different in sense of feelings and what you were talking there about love? I'm not sure. Are there more multiple ways to become a parent? Absolutely. So I think we've got to in some way separate off feelings and how we relate to one another from the context of how we might live our lives in different social situations. Yes, although I do feel those things have been very intertwined because even a, a concept like, a construct like motherhood, parenthood, is complex for me and brings up complex questions and, and feelings because when I came out as a lesbian in the 1990s, it was really assumed that you would not have children and I suppose part of my acceptance of that was that most of my friends would not have children either so there were lots of people who were in the same boat but I think at the age I am now at 50 and seeing women just a few years younger having families there's a sense of have I missed out on something that actually I might have wanted if times had moved on a little bit sooner? So I think I know what you're saying, that there is this sort of political and, and kind of social context to how we live in a very day to day sort of humdrum way sometimes. And it, but that it seems like the emotions filter through to all of that. And it, for me, anyway, probably I'm less good than, than you professionals at separating these things. But I, I think they are connected too. I, th I mean, obviously, yes, to some extent, but I think 
what you're characterising there is almost a, a narrative of progress. So we've got loads more rights, therefore, mm. we, we, you know, it's more progressive, isn't it great? And actually, my experience, and a lot of other people, was very different off those times in the 80s and the 90s when I had my child, because it was Section 28. And campaigning yeah. against Section 28 and pretended families and Thatcher's regime of trying to keep everything about homosexuality out of schools was that I realised you could have children because all these people were having them because that's what she was fighting against. So actually, mm. um, it, was, it, was a, it was a very interesting moment to think about how that subversive discourse, that narrative that we talk about, you know, and we live through, can actually be a very positive experience in reaction to something which is very repressive. And I think what we see now, which is very different, yes, all those emotions, I absolutely agree about continuities, but all the emotions we've got now is when I was doing some research recently on long-term couple relationships with young queers, what was interesting, the difference definitely was there, that they were all contemplating parenthood. Yes, And that right. was different. So it wasn't mm. something everyone used to think would be part of their trajectory. Now, it mm. doesn't mean they were all going to have children, they were thinking about, would I have them? What did I want instead? And, and so I, the choice might be available, which I don't mm. think I felt it was, even though, of course, you had children before I was sort of thinking I couldn't. But I, I do think that there, there seemed to be a narrative that it, that it wasn't really something open to you or it seemed quite complicated or, or indeed expensive, mm. so perhaps it didn't seem accessible to everybody. Mm. I mean, Chance, I'd love to bring you into the discussion and maybe ask about you know, how your work and life has brought you to writing this book, Queering Psychotherapy. Yeah, I mean, long roots, really. Um, <laughs> so many influences. I guess, you know, my, my own sort of 35 years of uh, being in and out of relationships, queer relationships, um, and, you know, being the editor of Diva and being in, you know, queer community for, you know, m all of my adult life. Um, you know, having gay and lesbian and bi and trans friends, um, and um, and then I suppose in terms of the psychotherapy, you know, sort of thinking about the influences of different kinds of approaches, so attachment theory and and uh, trauma theories, and you know, always being aware, as Jackie was saying, of 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 considering each individual through an intersectional matrix mm. um, of all the different ways in which and sort of markers of difference that might impact how they are in the world and how you know who they are in the world and then you know people that are in my life my supervisors you know my queer supervisors people I read Amanda Middleton who's written a chapter in the book who is a family systemic family therapist um, you know all these people kind of infuse my knowledge and understanding and which is ongoing i'm always learning about relationships and queer relationships particularly queer and trans relationships and how have you seen things develop uh, you know Jackie and I were just talking about the, the sort of the progress that we have seen. We have so many more rights and now we do have a more inclusive LGBTQI plus community and we're more aware of, of pronouns, people being trans and non-binary. How has that sort of shaped our conversation about relationships and sex and, and love? Are, are we being more inclusive around this whole area? 
Well, I think yes and no. <laughs> I think I, I'm not sure who you're referring to as we uh, when you say that. Um, if it's our profession as psychotherapists, yes, slowly. <laughs> You know, there are there is more of an awareness of it's sort of in, in, a need for an intersectional approach um, in terms of you know sexuality, gender, cisness, transness, race, class. Um, you know, because most of the theories that we learn still in the therapy trainings, you know, come from people who were largely white, um, cis, male or female, heterosexual. Not all by any stretch of the imagination, but many um and you know those kind of paradigms and frameworks that um have and theories you know whilst undoubtedly you know incredibly useful you know do need a bit of updating sometimes uh and so when i'm working with my clients you know i'm always aware of you know the kind of uh, differences that might uh, be impacting on individuals I don't work with couples but the individuals who are in relationships you know living in a heteronormative world where you know their love is not and their their identities are not loved and welcomed mm. far from it you know particularly in the case of trans and, and non-binary people so growing up and having relationships within the heteronormative context you know you, means that you have to kind of hide and you know uh, within some of the heter heteronormative norms, you know, uh, uh, and you, some people try and make their way differently, you know, make their relationships different, and we can see this in, in practices like, you know, in emotional non-monogamy or f or friends with benefits. But you know, these are things which heterosexual people are doing too. I mean, I get a sense from speaking to many people and reading that a lot of those constructs that you've just talked about, those rather creative ideas, those new ways or sort of more modern ways of thinking around monogamy and thinking around sort of family and how we define that have originated within the queer community because to some extent we've had to think a little differently and think outside the box. And as you rightly say, the more heteronormative broad community are now embracing many of these concepts but I do think many of them seemed to originate in the in the queer community I, mean, I obviously do a lot of kind of comedy and and work around breakups and I always kind of perhaps joke <laughs> perhaps I'm serious that lesbians pioneered conscious uncoupling long before Gwyneth Paltrow uh, because we do see queer women in particular staying friends with ex-partners because when it's a smaller community you sort of have to because you you are going to see those people and you need to sort of get on and get on with it so do you think some of these concepts have originated in in the queer community or am i am i sort of romanticizing our world a bit too much i don't know i mean i think a lot of them possibly have but you know if you look on dating apps these days there are a lot of people describing themselves as hetero flexible for example you know who are into you know um poly uh setups you know hierarchical and non-hierarchical and um all sorts of you know ways of getting together to have sex or or cuddles or you know varying degrees of intimacy and that seems to be across the board i think gay men and increasingly lesbians and queer identified 
people are exploring non-monogamy, for example, like emotional non-monogamy seems to be, you know, quite an attractive idea and practice. So when you say emotional non-monogamy, do you mean that they would have a sexually exclusive primary relationship and have emotional relationships outside that that could perhaps look in some ways similar to friendships, but they would be more like a committed relationship when you would make an effort to have dates or spend time with that person. Is is that what you mean? I think it, they'd take all sorts of different forms. And I think that, you know, mm. the I suppose perhaps the beauty of those kinds of setups for the people that are into them is that they can just create their own mm. and negotiate whatever it is that they want to do and how they want to be, you know, and those those kind of rules within the, 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 you know, the dyad or the triad or the quad, uh, or however many people there'll be. Are um, self-determined. Yeah, yeah. self-determined and, and people have different terms. You know, they have things like uh, kitchen table poly. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah. where you all sit around and discuss what, what the rules are yeah, and, and who yeah. has a relationship or connection with who and what those are. Yeah, well, yeah. some people say they're solo poly, so they just, yep. you know, they'll, they'll date lots of other, you know, or one or two or or many other people. Or, or they may not be dating at a particular yeah. time and enjoying time on their own, because, of course, that's another important relationship, isn't it? Um, I mean, I guess most people will know, but when we say poly, obviously we mean polyamory, which comes from many loves. So I do think that polyamory, the broad idea is that we love lots of people, which I think all of us do, really. Mm. So I kind of think who's actually ever really, truly monogamous. Uh, Pritesh, let's bring mm. you in. Hello. Lovely to meet you. You're the, you're the only one of the three I haven't really met properly before. So welcome and thank, thank you, you for joining us. Um, and we had a brief conversation on the phone and it was really interesting some of the things you were bringing up around how you know this kind of slightly celebratory feel that I had about how stepping away from the norms had some positive aspects to it in the freedom that you can embrace around exploring concepts like like non-monogamy but is there something about how our sort of exclusion may have sort of pushed us in that direction that perhaps is is a less celebratory aspect to it um thank you um it's such a complex mm. question with a complex answer, I feel, um, which I'm still figuring out. Um, the best way I can kind of journey with you on it is maybe sharing a bit about how I'm figuring it out in my own yeah. life, in my own world. Great. Um, I, I kind of grappled a lot in my younger age, you know, struggling with my identity and my sexuality and coming from a very typical South Asian family and Hindu family, refugee parents, all these indoctrinations and societal indoctrinations as well. And um, I kind of witnessed, you know, in these lack of modeling in the 80s and 90s about what queerness is, what to be gay is. And um, it was lack of really anything healthy. Um, you've got the, you know, the magazines that torsos and that's about it. Um, <laughs> Mm. So I spied that I haven't succeeded. Um, <laughs> and um, I found that I had to really separate from the system that I was in and wondered and found healthy and unhealthy models, if that makes sense, um, about how to relate. Um, but what I realised in that process going through my own therapy is that I held so many indoctrinations about well, these heteronormative societal indoctrinations of what I felt I had to be, what is monogamy. Mm. So it was imposed upon me, if that makes sense. 
um, unconsciously and I was acting it out, but fighting it internally. Um, and I find this a lot with my clinical work as well. Um, but over the years, what I've found is when I work through my story, I work through my traumas, both family and systemic, um, societal, cultural, um, I'm finding a more f authentic freedom. And through that authentic freedom that I'm finding, I'm discovering what relationships I really am drawn to and what is really me. So I'm in a monogamous relationship, I'm married, and I journey through various contexts to get there. But I feel I'm monogamous now through freedom rather than indoctrination. What do you think, Jackie, about monogamy and ethical non-monogamy? I think the first thing is to pick up on some of it. I, mean, I think there's a, there's a way we often talk, everyone, myself included, um, where we generalise experience and say, you know, lesbians are friends with their exes. No, <laughs> really not. <laughs> Lots of times lesbians are not friends with their exes. Sex parties are all fluffy and warm. Sometimes they're not. They're just about hard sex. You know, I mean, yeah. I think we've just got to be really cautious. And the same with ideas of, you know, eth ethical non-monogamy. It sounds great, but for <laughs> some people, it's really a nightmare. And it's done through bullying um, because mm. a partner wants to do something that they don't want to do. And they think I've got to do this, otherwise I'll lose my partner. Mm. So I think I think we've got to be slightly circumspect about this rose-tinted view of relationships are <laughs> doing it better or doing it differently <laughs> mm. um, we're just doing it good mm. bad and ugly mm. um, <laughs> yeah. we're still making it up mm. we always will be yeah. as and, and same with everyone else you know same with heterosexual people heterosexual everyone we're all making it up as we go along to some extent um, in terms of not just ethical non-monogamy but just polyamorous relationships and non-monogamous relationships I mean what I was finding in the study I did with long-term couples is there tended to be a primary couple. And that mm. might be, because okay, that's sample bias because I was doing that. So, you know, the focus was on couples, but that is quite common. And if you look a lot about the writing around that, so there tends to be two plus. Mm. And I think that's something we've got to think about. Well, is there something about our need to be close to one person? Because it's in, it actually, it's much easier. It's much safer in the sense of you can just kind of share all of your stuff and contain it yeah um it's also most people especially as they get older are very time poor and so actually you know the idea of having time to see my partner is fantastical for me most of the time let alone anything else you know life yes. is really really busy for all of us True. and so i think we've got to be slightly cautious that we don't think there's this this romanticized view and this queer oh, we're all over the rainbow and <laughs> trotting over somewhere <laughs> to great you know, yeah. past is new and actually I think we're all just doing our best and I think part of that is also the idea that serial monogamy is bad is also not true because it's how culture perceives monogamy and serial relationships yeah. if we could learn possibly to think relationships have a duration and when they finish, they finish. They don't necessarily break and it's all painful and bad. There may be emotional pain to it, but actually if we could just think that's the end of the relationship, it was good while it was there, what can I take from that? What can I want to take into my new relationships? Then we can think actually we can have serial relationships and that's absolutely a positive and nurturing experience. And I think a lot of people are now moving more towards that and thinking it's this roller coaster where you're mm. heartbroken, you're in love, you're heartbroken, you're in love. And, mm. and actually what we're at is, you know, oh, what can we learn 
from not on the stage but from the lives we've lived yes and i do think that sort of my own negative interpretation of serial monogamy is purely based on the assumptions and the messaging that we are fed by by the media by the romantic films by the the love songs i agree that it could be a perfectly fine and happy and very exciting and thrilling way to live and be and there may well be different phases and stages of our life where somebody new is is the more appropriate and more compatible partner for us um you know i just think that that the messaging i had around that was was not that healthy i mean i would argue that to some extent even if you're serially monogamous but you stay friends with exes you you're sort of adopting a poly structure to your life mm -hmm. anyway mm -hmm. because you have yeah. exes you've shared history with that are still important to you and i think for me the only sort of positive messaging i started to hear about serial monogamy was from the poly community ironically enough and it was really i think there's a friend of mine who'd written a book about um, poly breakups and Dossie Easton had written the the foreword to that and had spoken about how duration is not a measure of a relationship's value but I do feel that's really only a message I started to hear when I started reading books about non-monogamy it's, it's really interesting that we don't have books about monogamy mm. that teach us these things mm. in the first place what do you, well, you're nodding Pritish no I, I'm, I'm just I'm hearing what Jackie's saying in about serial monogamy and I think we have to put it into an individual context as well right I'm thinking of my my Hindu faith and my South Asian heritage and my the story of my ancestors and how it's about context and I guess what I'm I had to find my way to uh, monogamy um, in the sense I have been told by my faith it's well cultural poison here but it's that between a man and a woman and when I got married it was actually if you read the text and really understand it it's the marriage of souls um, which really empowered me to take that process and I think it's something about how do we queer monogamy you know in the play how do we find that spiritual position, how do we find depth and the different doors in long-lasting, monogamous, soulful relationships that require work and intensity and drive through, you know, a roller coaster um, and how do we survive it? And I, yeah, so I'm, I'm with this position at the moment as we're speaking, mm -hmm. yet holding so many versions of monogamy as well, aren't there? This I is mine, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's also important to not place value judgments in the way we label and identify yeah. things like monogamy serial monogamy bad yes. queer poly good yes. we should all aim for this and and actually it isn't the case mm. you know and, and actually the study i did on long-term couple relationships of all um, forms all sexualities and you know some were open some were closed some were young some were old etc etc it was basically they were just doing their best mm. and what makes something queer you know i mean it's an interesting idea what why why do we feel and i and i do say we myself mm. included again about we need to put this label on it you know this relationship is queer because some of the heterosexual people who i was talking to were having much more queer relationships <laughs> than some of the gay relationships mm. i was looking at which were happily married 2.2 children a nice dog because no lesbians have dogs not cats um, you know, and uh, we've got both <laughs> living the dream <laughs> i've got a dog um me too, me too. <laughs> um, 
and that's actually even an interesting cultural twist, you know, about the domestication of, of mm. relationships. But I mean, I do think this desire to think about transgression and then are we queering relationships? Are we using it as an adjective, as a noun? Are we saying, you know, a queer couple? How are we using that term and being more sophisticated in mm. the use of it? Mm, chance, I, what do you think? Well, I was wow. just thinking, yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think that, um, I suppose, for me, at, right at this very moment, because I'm reading this book by Adam Phillips, the psychoanalyst, called Houdini's Box on the Arts of Escape. And it's basically about the way that we kind of escape from and to relationships, you know, from one relationship to it, to, and, and sort of exits and entrances from relationships to, to others. And he talks about how we all... Are, you know, at, at various points in our lives are escape artists. And I was wondering, and I was thinking queer, maybe qu queer could be, uh, you know, um, an alternative for, you know, we're escaping the the ways that society shackles us and the way mm. that Houdini was trying to break free of the shackles in the, you know, in the chest that he was, you know, bound and locked into. And maybe queering is about breaking free of some of the structures that we have, you know, internalized ideologically and have embodied and, uh, you know, because I think the way that we tend to evaluate ourselves can be often through a kind of cis-heteronormative lens and a wide lens. Mm. Um, and so although we might not live, you know, in that way, we might sort of judge or value ourselves and others might judge and value us as well through the those kind of quite restrictive lenses and so I kind of like the idea of us all being escape artists mm. and you know making making our way and remaking mm. how we can be as gay people because many of us didn't grow up with our you know same-sex parents who mirrored back to us what it was like to, to have a kind of relational dynamic between you know two women or two men or we may have had gay or lesbian friends of parents I did come into our lives when we were kids which obviously introduced a different possibility but you know I think that mm. there you know there are quite a few psychoanalysts and psychotherapists who've written about the absence of mirroring and what that might mm. do what lack it might create in a lesbian or a gay or a trans person you know a trans mm. person who's growing up with cis parents who perhaps doesn't recognize their identity so I think thinking about those kinds of things are interesting ways to think about our potential and how we can be and who we can be both individually and in relationship mm, gosh so interesting I, I think that lack of mirroring is definitely a powerful thing and we have so much lack of representation in popular culture as as well. Pritesh, I'm, I'm interested, we've talked about sort of heteroflexible identities and in many ways it seems a progressive thing that we are now more fluid in, in all our, our identities. Although I wonder if I find it sometimes challenging when perhaps very privileged white cis heteronormative pop stars kind of come out as as not straight and they don't have any to me, seemingly kind of queer experience, if, if you know what I mean. They haven't had relationships with either same-sex partners or queer partners or trans partners. And I sometimes find that difficult to process 
if I'm if I'm being really honest. I talk a little bit in my book. There's a storyline um, about a bisexual woman that I have a very brief um, kind of fling and flirtation with, and how because she has always dated men, and that's her experience, which is very different to my experience of dating women through you know the 1980s and Thatcher and section 28 and so on and so I, I guess there's a there's something I find challenging which is my issue to overcome for sure about the sort of lack of acknowledgement of the privilege gap I suppose if we have people who are seen to us anyway very privileged sort of coming coming out as as not straight um but but living very seemingly to us heteronormative and privileged lives how do we sort of grapple with that and wrestle with that well actually i'm, I'm wondering what's bothering you about it i know y well yeah, yeah but I, i'm just being completely frank and honest yeah. and i you know of course i um i'm an openly gay comedian and, mm. and queer woman and i want to embrace everybody and allow everybody to define themselves <laughs> and uh define mm. their sexualities in in whatever way they feel mm. comfortable and is positive and progressive um but i i suppose i'm concerned about hmm, some kind of forgetting of of what has happened i mean what is happening now for trans mm. people which is incredibly painful and what has happened you know in in past decades in this country for lesbian women and, and gay men and mm. i just think there's a a danger of becoming complacent and thinking it's all okay when mm. we know it's not really mm. and particularly ar around the world and in, in many places it's it's still for very far from okay mm. to be gay yeah i i authentically believe that um, sexuality and gender has a fluidity to it mm. and where one is on that spectrum is such a journey you know I've had my process I'm sure everyone here has had theirs and I I imagine when we watch these privileged pop stars there is a narrative of um, how authentic it is that's what I was hearing maybe I guess so yeah. yes it's yeah. the I don't know yes it's the I kissed a girl phenomenon I suppose yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what has followed in in the wake of that yeah well it's making me wonder about um our own internalized homophobia it's making me wonder, as we hold as queer people or any person in that sense what we have to negotiate that when we witness the freedom of someone in their queerness or their sexuality and if we're still negotiating it that's you know i wonder about that i don't know what do others mm. think yeah i mean i think that i can i can hear you I, I hear you what you're saying, Rosie, um, you know, a bit of a kind of like eye roll about certain people. I mean, you know, when that song came out, I Kissed a Girl, you know, there was definitely lots of eye rolling in the Diva offices. <laughs> yes. But, <Yeah. laughs> but at the same time, everybody's got to start somewhere. Um, true. <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> that, with kissing a girl, then um, I think, I yeah. tried it. I liked it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and, and it, it just so happens, you know, she may be a pop star but she's also a human being who's living her life and you know trying to explore who and how she is in the world and you know not everybody gets to make a pop song out of it and you know make a lot of money but she <laughs> did but yeah no I think that I really agree with what Pratesh was saying about sort of what the internalized homophobia and um and negotiating that and making space for people to be where they're at absolutely um, and know. and that is very 
that's all very healthy, I think. Um, I don't know. I, I find it really interesting because um, I don't know whether Jackie might have something to say about this as well, but I, I feel like I came out at a time when it was important politically to define as something. Mm. And um, I mean, we haven't talked a, a whole lot about bisexuality. Um, and when I first came out at university, I think I was bisexual for about two weeks because <laughs> I think I thought that possibly was a more authentic representation of my sort of basic animal human sexual desire. I do fancy boys. I do fancy men. I think uh, George Michael was my first true love um, <laughs> and I couldn't have him. So <laughs> I went for women. But, <laughs> you know, obviously I'm being a little a little silly there, but it seemed like there was almost this element that you had to choose to be a lesbian and in fact many women at that time were choosing to be political lesbians and that was a sort of political statement a feminist statement that you were rejecting men even though many of the women that adopted that label were actually heterosexual and have gone on to to marry men in later life so I suppose this idea about labelling being important seems to be very much in flux now, mm. whereas I think in the 1990s it seemed sort of integral to a queer life, really, to hold on to your label very closely. Yeah, I mean, the identity politics was, you know, much stronger there in some sense. But, you know, I'll always give a, a healthy dose of mm, caveat, mm, not quite sure. Um, because I think what you were referring to really was about authenticity of self and then also that's mixed up with a sense of belonging and who has the right to call themselves one thing or another and we know that is you know about privilege at loads of different levels too and many people can't even accept themselves as who they are and name it to themselves let alone to anything else but I think, you know, if we're thinking about the past, you know, do you have to have a brick through your window and be beaten up to say, you know, well, I remember what it was like in the 80s? Because I remember it wasn't nice for either of those things, can I say? Um, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone else. And so I don't think I want to say, you know, well, I'm a card-carrying <laughs> leather, you know, because <laughs> I've had all of this happen to me. And, and I find those those ideas that we go back to labelling, of, you know, you've got people saying, oh, I'm gold-star lesbian. It's oh. like, really? I mean, <laughs> really? So are we saying that you've not slept with a man, therefore you're gold star? I think that's I think really true. And I think it's also very exciting. Um, and, you know, really escaping from the shackles of old 20th century and sort of early 21st century thinking about sexuality and gender and bodies and how they come together. Um, and, you know, I, I know... You know, definitely, it's 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 quite common for you know people who transition um, medically or otherwise, who w may change, you know, cha become more fluid in their in terms of who their identity, uh, who they're attracted to. Um, you know, you get a lot of people defining as pan these days. Yeah. You know, who perhaps previously were lesbian and then um, maybe, you know, people. I mean, you know, I know a trans man who's gone through all of the you know sexuality um, options from you know when he was previously a lesbian and you know that's that's you know really wonderful and testament to what you were saying about you know are we really so different we are dominant structures and ideologies you know have tried to make us 
feel and understand that we are but actually you know we're just humans and we're just trying to live our best lives and manage to be in relationship in, you know and if we can manage to enjoy them you know whilst they're good and that they're good more than they're bad and then mm. we can sit together with the difficulties and we're doing a good job I think. Wow powerful powerful thoughts. Pritesh what do you think about the idea of queer family because I've certainly found it comforting um, the sort of logical family as Art- Armistead Volpin mm. puts it and this idea that our queer allies and peers and friends are our family perhaps when biological families mm. have rejected us mm. or for me my biological family is very very small mm. um, because one of my parents died when I was in my 20s and mm. I don't have any siblings so mm. I think having all these mm. I don't know if, if you like sort of queer siblings suddenly when I started going to gay clubs um, I think one time we were in a lesbian club next door to heaven and we found a secret passageway through <laughs> and we found it more fun there <laughs> Maybe we bumped into each other. Maybe. <laughs> but I I found the idea of queer family mm. quite celebratory. But I wonder again if mm. perhaps am I looking at our community through rose-tinted glasses because that's helpful or has been helpful to me. I think it is something to celebrate, isn't it, really? I hope so. Yeah, of course <laughs> it is. Of course it is. We found family and tribe. It's amazing. Um, if Those of us who have and some still struggle to do so. Um, um, but th- I can't help but also kind of think about how we have had to find that tribe, let's say, um, and the journey mm. towards it. Yeah. Um, it makes me think about polyamory as well. You know, if we stay with what you, we were talking about earlier and um, our longing for that connection or family and how we find it. And I definitely have ex-partners that are my dearest, closest friends and a part of my tribe now. Mm. And they know me really intimately. Um, and in some ways I am polyamorous. <laughs> yes, um, yes. And it's it's amazing because um, they guide me, support me, and they teach me so much about me. Um, things that my family couldn't do just because of the complexities of family. Um, I couldn't have my queerness mirrored, but I have my queer family that mirrors my queerness and helps me find my queerness, um, and I help them find theirs. There's a mutuality. I've learned how to really love um, and what that means and the depths and the complexities of love and it's still ongoing through my queer family and I include my um, my husband and my son in that as well you know so I'm forever learning through my queer family and actually it's feeding my birth family um, and how I'm learning to love them and navigate my queerness with them that's where I am with it I think and more but I don't think we've got enough time there's always time <laughs> there's always time I'm interested as well, Chance, in the ideas around progress. And we've talked about how what rapid progress we're perhaps going to make in the coming decades. And I suppose I thought we had made pretty rapid progress in, say, in the last couple of decades. I mean, I remember in the early 90s, on Valentine's Day, staging a same-sex mock wedding demo with local a local outrage group outside outside the Minster with with the sort of feminist group from York Uni. And we were just shouting through megaphones, love is not a crime, thinking that it was pure science fiction that two women or two men would be able to get married within our lifetimes. So it's interesting Mm. to me that, you know, I sort of see this huge shift that has happened 
Um, and it's almost mind-blowing to think that maybe it's going to be evolving, things are going to be evolving at an even greater rate, particularly when I sort of compare, you know, the sort of lesbian and gay movement as it sort of was then back in the 90s and now LGBTQ plus movement when I compare that, say, with, with feminism and some of the things that I was talking about with the women's group, about that kind of equality that women were looking for. Um, and there are many of those kind of quite simple goals, sort of equal pay and so on, that we're nowhere near. So to me, it's quite it's quite interesting to look at the sort of rate of progress and how we may be moving forwards. And I suppose I thought we had come a long way, but maybe we're moving forwards even faster yeah, I suppose, where do we locate progress? Um, like, well, I was just thinking about, you know, some stuff that you were saying, Jackie, about, um, you know, lesbians back in the 80s. You know, somebody, a gay elder uh, in my life was telling me about this street of single lesbians in who lived together in a street in Bristol, I think. He was saying then that and all the kids would just sort of run between each other's houses and mm. so that the childcare mm. was shared or you know kids were shared between a gay father or fathers and lesbian mothers and so you know the way they were sort of doing family was was definitely non-normative and it was also kind of like queer family you know mm. I mean, it was literal queer family mm. but in a different kind of a way with within a time uh that was incredibly hard you know particularly for lesbians and on lesbians wasn't it you know they were on the front cover of newspapers you know in the courts being their lives being ripped apart i mean it was absolutely horrendous i mean i didn't know anyone but i read about it and and you know just you know and, and that kind of stuff you know is happening to trans people now really i suppose at the front mm. pages of the newspapers so you know there is progress in some respects and of course you know trans people you know have um greater visibility now than has been the case but you know as with all kind of liberation movements there's a backlash and the backlash seems to have come very very quickly um as it did you know with feminism and civil rights movement and gay rights and and we're seeing countries where like america for example where these these rights in law are being overturned and um or there's a threat of them being overturned Last weekend, there was London Trans Pride between apparently twenty and 30,000 people. Enormous levels of support mm. and, you know, levels, numbers of trans and non-binary people, which, which was, you know, if you, if you didn't read the newspapers, you would think, wow, people love trans people, you know. And the thing is, so there's, there's progress at sort of grassroots level, you know, at street level, and then there's progress or not progress, you know, in the sort of law courts you know and so mm. there's all sorts of I mean, levels of progress i suppose you could say going on in different ways at different times everything's shifting so yeah that's where i'm at with it <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing all of these well really inspiring thoughts and i shall certainly go away and uh be be thinking more thinking more about all of this do you have any sort of closing thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with Jackie I think I'm going to pick up something there that that chant was talking about because I think it takes us full circle to what I was talking about at the beginning about what constitutes progress and yes greater rights greater civil liberties 
um, which are only trans, you know, they're, they're not permanent. Can we just look at America? <laughs> Nothing yeah. is permanent. Mm. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't take things for granted. Um, there's still always arguments and battles to be fought. Um, but I think it's also remembering by those, by those victories, by those things we've won in some ways, who gets pushed out. So the more you, you get that you've achieved something, that means you are marginalising something else because there seems to be within society that you have to be defined in in opposition to something else. So you can't be just this one thing. You are who is that thing you're against or different to or something like that. And I do think as we've got, yeah, great, same-sex marriage, civil partnership, whether you like it or don't like it, um, it, it doesn't matter. But those who aren't in traditional relationships those who want to remain without any relationship whatsoever they're being pushed further to the margins trans people yeah. who can't go through um, the full legal process pushed further to the margins yeah. so what we're f what we're seeing is yes great strides forward in one way which we must think you know never take them for granted but also that that means it's possibly at the expense of others and that's when it takes me back to being generous and mm -hmm. just thinking, you know, think about who's next. Think about this is all of us. And it is that idea of family or clan or kin or whatever we want to call it to think we are in this together because people will try and rupture that solidarity. They will try and separate things. And to be really proud of where we're up to now, I, I think pride is contentious in many ways but is also something I'm proud of um, and take part in um, a celebration and a protest and to always think about making it open to everyone Right, Chance do you have any thoughts to close on? It's been a really lovely kind of multi-faceted and circuitous kind of uh, conversation I've really enjoyed it and appreciate what people have said. Um, I think that, it, I, I suppose I'm left thinking about sameness and difference and how I think all of us are managing stories of sameness and difference, but they're same and different <laughs> for <laughs> yes. all of us. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing that's really important, you know, in our profession, I think, is to um, not treat everyone the same. You know, everybody is unique and everybody is sitting in their own intersectional matrix and their own kind of experience of themselves and their histories and their ancestry and um you know being kind of uh, sensitive to that i think is really important and i think i would say to everyone particularly to lgbtqi plus people you know enjoy and revel in the radical nature of your relationship and you know when difficulties arise you can do your best to kind of sit with them and not run from them um or if you run away come back to them <laughs> um then um you know you're doing all right mm. and just in case anyone wants to get the book it's called queering psychotherapy um and it's going to be out in october um, and it's uh, a collection of conversations and essays by and between uh, a very diverse range of psychotherapists and counsellors um, about, um, you know, being 
queer in the world, queer and trans in the world today. Fantastic. So people could just Google that. They could look that up later in the year. Or they yeah. could probably pre-order. Maybe they, can, they can pre-order now, actually. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's aimed at therapists, but I think anybody that's interested in mental health and in LGBT and queer lives would be interested mm. in it. Jackie, we should plug your books. I mean, you've had several. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to plug them all, but people could look you up or... People, people can look at uh, the books. And also now I'm working with um, an app. So I'm working with Paired, uh, an oh, yes. app for couples, um, which is the largest global number one app, um, but also it's inclusive. It, it set out from the beginning to say relationships are relationships and we embrace all couples. Um, at the moment it is couples only, um, <laughs> but it's it's something which I'm passionate about because it's based on relationship science and it's saying, you know, how do we work our relationships ourselves rather than, you know, yes, psychotherapy is fantastic and people should you know, seek outside um, help mm. from the, for the relationship when it's needed. But also, how do we look after ourselves and our relationships on a daily basis? Mm. How do we love ourselves mm. and our partners in a generative way just every day, that little bit? Mm. Um, so mm. that's why, yeah, I did decide I, I would work with this company to do an app which was about saying it's as simple as that, it's on your phone. Mm. Just think about your relationship and your partner a bit regularly. And it's amazing. Your relationship gets better. You get happier. <laughs> just simple little kindnesses, isn't it? Like yeah. I know in one of your books, you just talk about um, sort of making your partner a cup of tea or various different cultural interpretations of that around mm. the world, like mm. buying bread rolls in the rain. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, it's really interesting to me that there is an app that is for couples because I think the app world has been so dominated by the idea of finding a partner as if that is the end of the whole process. Mm -hmm. There's then no support really once once you have. So, mm. yeah, really interesting. Uh, Pritesh, where can people find out more about you or your work oh. or look you up? Um, so um, I'm one of the founders of Ashna Counseling Psychotherapy based in London. And um, just Google us. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. Um, and any sort of closing thoughts oh, as yes, well on yes. the conversation? Um, well, first, thank you. It's been really wonderful thank to, you. to thank get you lost you. with you all in these amazing <laughs> discussions and <laughs> and build on each other. It's been really informative and a pleasure. Um, I What can I say? I'm, I'm really left with how do we as queer people love? What supported our understanding of love? How have we experienced love and how do we love now? Um, and how do, I f how do we free ourselves of anything that is traumatized or polluted in us that doesn't allow us to, including loving ourselves um, or our partners or family or our tribe? Let's find ways to really love each other and ourselves. Thank you. Oh, that's, that's a lovely note to end on. Well, thank you all for joining me today. What a fascinating and fabulous discussion. You can keep in touch with me on Twitter at Rosie Wilby and on Instagram at Breakup Monologues for a slightly lighter look at relationships, heartbreak, love and sexuality. Thanks again to my guests, Jackie Gab, Jane Chance-Shazelska and Pritesh Raja-Helm. And thanks to you for listening. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every colour of the rainbow.